The man comes up and says, you take American Express, right? <laughs> but it, it's really, in the end, it's kind of a lighthearted way to communicate a very serious truth. Very serious. That our understanding of grace and of truth are often determined by us. And then when we come to Jesus and we come to his word, we see a real understanding of what grace and truth look like. In fact, when we understand what real grace is, as you saw in the video, it's offensive to many. People won't celebrate the forgiveness of those who have committed many, many sins simply on the belief of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it speaks to our self-righteousness. It speaks to our self-sufficiency. But it also speaks to the deception that in the end, we're all self-salvation projects and that we're all not only our own gods, we're also our own saviors. So that's what makes John chapter 1, verse 14 so not only important, but insightful that God in order to be made right with God, sent his son, who is God, to take on flesh. Now, not only is he the glory of the Father, but he's full of grace and truth. Let's look at it. Eyes back at John chapter 1, verse 14. And we're going to see that Jesus is the living embodiment of both truth and grace. Verse 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Stop right there. What we learned and what we remember from last week is that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning, and through, God, and through the Word, God made everything. This word, though, isn't just an abstract, ethereal concept. We're not talking philosophy here. We're not talking Star Wars. It's not the Force. No, this word is a person. And the person's name hasn't been revealed yet. It will be revealed today. But this word has been revealed to be a him. And this word is the fullness of truth and grace. My friends, we need both. We never want to separate what God has brought together. Grace and truth always accompany one another. In fact, when we lean too much on the side of some human-based truth or some sentimental grace, we get neither. And here's the beauty of it. Both grace and truth find their fullness in Christ. I was getting my hair cut this week. And, uh, you know, there's times where a pastor uh, is in a position where you just naturally start talking to somebody, right? So you're on the bus, you're in a taxi, right? Or perhaps you're getting your hair cut, you're on the airplane. And because you're, you're kind of stuck with the person, conversation naturally happens. So it's always fun for me uh, on some certain level that when people see me, they don't see a pastor, right? I don't have the collar. I don't introduce myself as father, uh, I don't really fit this stereotypical mode of a clear clergyman. So people will talk to me as if they would talk to any 41-year-old man. And oftentimes they would talk to me out of the church in a way they would never talk to me in the church. <laughs> Jokes, language that aren't just PG-13, full-on R, right? And then the question comes up, hey, so what do you do for a living? 
I know what's coming. I'm a pastor. They go white. They're like a ghost. And that conversation's going to be over. I think I've timed it to about 10 seconds. I have 10 more seconds before they run away, right? As their minds replay every single thing they've just said and automatically feel guilty about saying it to a pastor. Well, this happened when I was getting my hair cut. And the lady was talking to me, and, and you know, we're going back and forth. And inevitably, she says, um, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm the pastor of the best church I know, Colsec Community Church. She said, oh, you're a pastor, a community church. I said, yeah. She said, oh, I got to tell you about this other church in town I went to. This is one of those, one of those Bible-believing churches, <laughs> one of those born-again churches. And she said, I went to this church, and you will never believe what they did. Now, listen, perhaps you've been to some interesting churches. We'll just use the word interesting, right? where for whatever reason, because of how they understand the Holy Spirit, there could be all kinds of weird things happening, right? I didn't know if she was going to say there were snakes involved or chickens being sacrificed or whatever. She said, I couldn't believe what they did. They opened this. She's like, I couldn't believe it. I grew up in a tradition where this just kind of stayed, you know, in the pew. I couldn't believe that they opened it up and then the pastor got up there and read it and then also taught it. She was so amazed by this. And as I was saying, well, we need both. I was telling her, we need both. We need God's truth so we understand God's grace. I was also grieving that many people can come to a church service on a Sunday morning and never hear the real truth. There's human tradition. There's man-made truth. But we believe that God's inspired truth is the final truth. It's the last word. So when we come to Scripture... We see that truth is revealed in who God is, what God has said, but then also what Jesus has revealed. He is the Word made flesh. We understand God through the Word in Scripture, and then we see God alive in the Word incarnate in Christ. We need both grace and truth. One author put it like this, Randy Alcorn, he said this, he said, grace and truth are not contradictory. Sometimes we think they are. Jesus didn't switch on truth and then turn it off so he could switch on grace. Both are permanently stitched in Jesus Christ. Both grace and truth are permanently stitched in Jesus Christ. Both should be switched on in us. When we offend everybody, it's because we've taken on the truth mantle and we've forgotten grace. When we offend nobody, it's because we've watered down the truth in the name of grace. You see, what needs to happen is both truth needs to be redeemed in light of God's word, but grace does as well. Because if we have an improper understanding of either, we will have an improper understanding of both, and then we will have an improper understanding of the one who is the fullness of grace and truth. The gospel is offensive. It just is. Jesus was crucified not because of his propensity to do good deeds, to perform miraculous works, because he petted sheep and hugged children. Why was Jesus crucified? Because of the truth. Because of his claims. Because of who he said he was. He's the Savior. The only Savior. He is 
is a living embodiment of God's truth and his grace. It begins and ends with him. There's a lot of religious people that hated hearing that. There's a lot of self-righteous people that hated hearing that. And that's why it's so important to return back to the Gospel of John and remember where the fullness of grace and truth is found. To remember not only the teaching of John the Apostle, but the witness of John the Baptist. Let's look at verse 15 together, friends. Let's look at verse 15. Talking once again about John the Baptist. We've been going in and out with John the Baptist. Verse 15 says this, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Stop right there. Jesus would say of John the Baptist in another gospel account that no other person born of woman has been greater than John the Baptist. What a remarkable statement. Wouldn't you like to put that on your resume, right? John understands his right ranking, though. He understands his position. He understands his position, and because he understands his position, he knows his purpose. Because he knows his purpose, he has real peace. You see, he's saying something profound here. He's saying that even though John the Baptist was older than Jesus, and even though John the Baptist's ministry of proclaiming this powerful message makes straight paths for the Messiah and repent, return back to God, return to Yahweh, he understood that his purpose was just to make Jesus famous. He understood his place. He understood his rank. John the Baptist says, Jesus was before me. What does that mean? Jesus wasn't born before him. Jesus didn't start his earthly ministry before him. John the Baptist knows that Jesus is, in fact, the preexistent word of God. And when you understand who Jesus is, what happens, friends? We understand who we are. And that's why it frees us up from getting all tweaked about ranking. How many times on a daily basis do we deal with ranking, right? Now, we do it as fun. Some of us like to rank our favorite movies or music. We check the billboard charts. We check the box office. We check the uh, standings for the NBA or whatever it might be. But we deal with ranking on a different level every day, right? Ranking speaks to us. Maybe you're a teenager and you're trying to climb that academic ladder so you would be in the top 10 of your school. Or perhaps you are uh, trying to get ahead in your business and you work hard and you work hard and you work hard. And for whatever reason, all these other people, maybe younger people, maybe less skilled people, seem to advance ahead of you. What's up with that? You see, what happens is when we find our identity in our worldly ranking, it robs us of our joy. It robs us of our peace. When we get so infiltrated and assimilated into a cultural understanding of worth equaling rank, don't be surprised when all it takes is someone to drive down the parkway right next to you in their fly Porsche or whatever, and you feel less human. Don't be surprised, young ladies, if you don't find your worth and how God sees you, that when you look at a billboard of a scantily dra- uh, dressed lady who's been airbrushed, 
and, and fixed up by a small army of makeup artists, don't be surprised if you feel less of a beautiful, wonderful young person made in the image of God. This is so countercultural and also counterintuitive, but John understood what Jesus' coming meant. I understand my place. And because I understand my place, I understand my purpose. And that helps me to be free, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to make him known. Why? Well, it's all grace. The next verse tells us, verse 16 says this, For from his fullness we have all received, let's say the next three words together because they're important. What does it say? Grace upon grace. grace. It would have been enough just to stop at verse 14. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John is feeling led to once again emphasize grace. Why is that? Because we could be pretty stubborn. Because not only do we tend to judge God's truth based on our cultural worldly truth, we tend to base our, God's understanding of grace based on our ability to give grace, right? So there's no way that God could forgive me this time. There's not. I've been making this same mistake not just for weeks, not just for months, maybe not even for years, but decades. Clearly, I've stepped over the line. Clearly, I'm beyond the bounds of his grace, and there's no hope for me. Why does John keep emphasizing grace? To say this, to say this to those who perhaps view God as a detached tyrant, or perhaps even those that know God to be Father, but think that there's a limit on his forgiveness. I want you to hear me as clear as I can, whether it's your first time or it's your millionth time. There is grace in Jesus Christ. Why do we need to hear this? Grace upon grace? Because we tend to view God's grace as we give grace. And we're not very good at giving grace. That's why there's so much talk of tolerance today. And we don't even do that well. We don't even tolerate each other. We can't even coexist with each other. Oh, God's grace goes so much deeper and wider than we ever hoped. R.C. Sproul put it like this. He said, loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy, man-made idol. Unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love into our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. To love a holy God requires grace, grace strong enough to pierce this hardened heart and awaken our deadened souls. It's always been about grace. It's all grace. Like literally, friends, everything this side of hell is grace. Meaning that we all deserve God's justice. He is perfect. He is holy. He is just. He is forever and always good. When we understand how holy he is, we get what? That we are unholy in need of grace. It's only grace. It's always grace. And that grace is found none other than in Christ Jesus. 
I like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said this, Our Lord Jesus is ever giving and does not for a solitary instant withdraw his hand. The rain of his grace is always dropping. I can't wait to share this quote today on a day that's raining. The rain of his grace is always dropping. The river of his bounty is ever flowing. And the wellspring of his love is constantly overflowing. As the king can never die, so God's grace can never fail. We believe this? Man, this just changes everything, does it not? Changes how we see God, it changes how we see us. Does it change how we see our spouses? Change how we see our kids? Does it change how we see our personality and our place in the world? There's another man who was changed by grace. We're reading the Gospel of John. He talks about John the Baptist, but I'm going to tell you about another John. A John who knew all about ranking. In fact, the song that this John wrote is probably the greatest song ever written. And I'm not talking about the John that was in the Beatles. <laughs> this John was also British. This John lived in the 17th century. This John was brought up in a Christian home. For the first six years of his young life, he was raised and nurtured and loved by his Christian parents. They taught him the Bible and they shared the love of Christ with him. Tragedy struck and he lost both his parents. He was shipped away to his relative's house and instead of nurture and love and the Holy Spirit and God's word, it was the opposite. He was treated violently. He was abused and they mocked him because of his faith in Christ. For the next 10 or so years, this sent him on a downward spiral emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He ran away from his relatives, ran away from his home, and thought, I will enlist in the Royal Navy. And while he was in the Royal Navy, who he was, even in the structure of the military, still came out. He would constantly brawl with his fellow sailors. He was in trouble of keel hauling. Has anyone heard of keel hauling? I had to look this up. He would tie up his fellow sailors, wrap their feet up, and in the middle of the night, throw them off the side of the ship, off the mast of the ship, so in the dark, they would be hanging upside down, swinging like this. He'd be whipped for this, for his awful, terrible behavior, so much so that he left the Navy. And then he thought, all right, how do I get rich? I'm going to Africa. He wasn't looking for any gold in the ground. He thought the gold that he would find in Africa was in the slave trade. Things just kept getting worse. He didn't find gold there, no. He found guilt. He found true hardship and darkness. So much so that he tells the story that he would be eating food from where the slaves were working, literally groveling for scraps. So much so that one night he took his captain's whiskey, he drank it all down, he fell over the side of the ship, and then, believe it or not, his fellow slave traders had to save him by harpooning him. Can't make this stuff up. Huge scar on his side. They bring him back on the ship. Later on, he comes to his wit's end, almost like the prodigal son. He remembers his dad. Parents, I hope this encourages you. He remembers even as a young kid, only five or six years old. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In that moment, this man, John Newton, was saved. Later on, he would write these words, and perhaps you've heard of it before. It's a pretty catchy tune. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved what church? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but what church? Was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but you see that slave trader, brawling drunk, became a preacher. He became a pastor. And it was God's amazing grace that saved him and also led him to abolish the slave trade. John Newton is a testimony to Jesus being full of grace and truth. That person in your life, and perhaps that's even you, that you think you are beyond the saving grace and power of God. Listen to me, friends. Don't call God a liar. None of us would dare say God's a liar, right? We wouldn't utter the words. But when we say or believe that there's no grace for me, what are we saying? God, you're a liar. Your truth says one thing, but I refuse to believe it. Because what is most important to me is wallowing in my own self-pity and guilt. The fullness of grace has come. And we need to repent of our sin. We need to turn from our sin. We need to weep over our sin. But don't turn back to bondage and don't turn back to guilt. Run and fly to Christ where you will find grace upon grace. Verse 17 and 18 says this, and we'll conclude our study. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. You want to learn something really interesting about the Gospel of John? It's a little Bible trivia for for you. Share it with your friends at a party. (laughs) This will be the last time in John's Gospel you will hear the word grace. Made so much of it in the first 17 verses. This will be the last time you see the word grace. Ironically, but not ironically, it's the first time you hear the word Jesus Christ. Up until this point, it's been the word or him. In the same verse where John stops using the word grace, not not to say that God's grace has stopped, but what? The revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ has begun. It's always about him. We're going to talk about grace when we talk about Jesus. Every single time we mention Jesus, we're speaking of his grace. So the law was given through Moses. How do we understand the law? The law was given by God to God's people to reveal what? God's holiness. You remember, sometimes we get this confused. The law was given in the book of Exodus after God had saved his people after he had delivered them from slavery, from bondage, from tyranny, from Pharaoh's tyrannical rule. So God sets them free, and then he gives them the law to help them live free. But what happens? God is so holy that we can't live up to the law. So there was people at the time of Jesus' ministry where they had been so deceived and self-deceived that they thought the purpose of the law was to make us right with the lawgiver. The purpose of the law was never to save us. 
It could not. We are asking the law to do something it could never do. No, God saved his people by parting the Red Sea and delivering them. He gives them the law to help them live free, but also to show how we're enslaved to our slavery of sin. Now, what do we need? We need Jesus Christ, not to part the Red Sea, but to pave the path and to purify us from our sin, to cleanse us from our sin. And that didn't come from Moses' staff. That came from Jesus' cross. So John is not pitting the Old Testament against the New, right, friends? Right? So there's a certain understanding that Old Testament is wrath, New Testament is grace. Is that true? There's Old and New Covenant, and there's differences. This is part of God's salvation plan. I encourage you to study it on your own, okay? But is there examples of grace in the Old Testament? Yes, amen? Is there examples of wrath in the New? What he's trying to say here is that Moses was given the law. Exodus chapter 33, it actually points how the law was given in grace. And in fact, what we're about to hear makes a whole lot of sense. Moses wanted to see the face of God, but God said, you can't see the face of God. You can't see my face and live. So he gave him the law. So what happened now is that God has come in the fullness of Christ. Jesus said of himself, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law's purpose, as the book of Galatians says, is almost like a school teacher to point us to Christ, to reveal our need for grace, to help us see what we already know. There's no way we could save ourselves. Mercy. There's no way we could ever save ourselves or we'll ever be able to save ourselves. We feel good about ourselves because we're living according to our law. We judge each other based on our law, our culture's law. When we understand God's law, and you don't have to go far. Just dive into the Ten Commandments. Can't even get through the first ten. We realize on a daily basis we covet. On a daily basis we lie. On a daily basis we worship man-made idols and find our identity in them. No, we need grace. And that grace has a name. His name is Jesus. As John even says here, no one has ever seen God, not Moses in its totality on Mount Sinai when God gave the law, not Isaiah when he cries out in chapter 6, verse 5, woe is me for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. No, Isaiah only saw a shadow of that. Here's what is amazing. What Moses could not see And what Isaiah would not see, Jesus Christ is. The word who was with God, the word who was God, was face to face with God, became flesh, took on a face, so he could show us the face of God. And you're going to see this beautiful complementary truth throughout all of the Gospel of John. You're going to hear Jesus, who is God, but he's also the one that makes God known. Jesus gives life, and Jesus is life. Jesus raises the dead, and Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus gives bread, and Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus speaks truth, and Jesus is the truth. Jesus speaks the word of God, and Jesus is the word of God. I know that when my kids are in trouble, 
and they come to me in tears, they know they're in trouble, and they know there's going to be consequences. There's going to be discipline. What's the hardest thing for a kid to do? I always have to put my finger on their chin, say, look up at daddy. Tears in their eyes. Look up at my face. In the face of Christ, we're not pretending like the sin didn't happen. We're proclaiming that the sin was paid for. In the face of Christ, you won't find condemnation. You'll find grace. But we keep, like little children, looking down in our shame and our anguish. Do you hear the Father lifting your chin? He's made himself known. We know who he is. Look, run, bask in the grace and truth of Jesus. There's grace upon grace. Do we believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. Your grace and your truth, we need both. We never want to pit one against the other. We never want to settle with a human, man-made version of either. Thank God we find both in Christ, the fullness of grace, the fullness of truth. So Lord, as we heard to begin this service, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who was tempted in every way, yet did not sin, our great high priest who himself becomes the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, our Jesus allows us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. There's grace upon grace. Father God, I hope and pray that none of us are calling you a liar today. Not only a liar about the depth of your grace, but I also pray we're not calling you a liar about the reality of our sin. The infection, the cancer of sin goes deeper than we ever thought. But hallelujah, the grace of God can go deeper still. Friends, let's rise to our feet, shall we? Let's stand together.